It's Wednesday, February 28th. They wouldn't mess with voters like this during an election year, would they? We start here. Capitol Hill hurdles toward a shutdown. A shutdown would damage the economy significantly. President Biden called top congressional leaders into the Oval yesterday. We'll walk you through it. She fought against Roe v. Wade. Now Alabama's governor wants a bill to protect IVF. We work to foster culture of life, and that includes IVF. D.C. lawmakers have plans of their own, but will any of this bring back fertility clinics? And what happens when you leave one of the most infectious diseases on Earth up to a few hundred parents? One individual can actually spread it to 20 other individuals if they are not vaccinated. Why a measles outbreak has turned a Florida school into a public health experiment. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. As a lawmaker, one of your most basic jobs is to fund the government. Make sure taxpayer-funded agencies have the funds they need to operate. There's an end date to all that funding, so if you don't agree to the next budget, by that deadline, you get a government shutdown. Shutdowns are a big deal. Federal employees can't show up to work at jobs where we rely on them. Others might have to go to work but without paychecks. All of this can cost taxpayers billions of extra dollars, and sometimes it's just inconveniences, right? You can't make that passport appointment. You gotta cancel your family trip to a national park. But even as those inconveniences add up, it has the potential for the whole country to get really mad really quickly, which is why there's a basic rule in Washington, never, ever, allow a government shutdown to happen during a presidential election year. Well, this week, lawmakers are flirting with a Friday deadline with a government shutdown lurking on the other side. Let's break this down. ABC's Ali Picorn joins us from the U.S. Senate right now. Ali, I feel like we just did this a couple months ago. How, how did we get to this point? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, to understand it, we kind of have to look back over the last couple months to sort of get the lay of the land for where we are. So when Republicans took the majority of the House back in the last election, they made really clear they were going to be staking their name on making major cuts to the federal budget. If you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase, and again and again, would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? What that practically looks like, generally speaking, is slashing social programs that Democrats usually prioritize. And honestly, like there's some fairness to that. The federal deficit in this country is absolutely huge. And Republicans view that as a very legitimate national security threat. What we've seen in the last three years has just been excessive. Look, we added, we have a $34 trillion debt right now. We added a trillion dollars this past month alone. But the problem that Republicans are running into is that they only control one chamber of Congress. The Senate is in the hands of Democrats. So as they've been squabbling over how to pass long-term funding bills, they haven't really come to a place yet where everybody's in agreement. They've been buying themselves time by passing different government funding deadline extensions to try to not shut the government down while they keep debating this. That's worked so far. But things are getting a little bit tense, and this Friday we'll see if they're able to come up with something to once again ebb off a shutdown at the last minute. Um, And by the way, Friday, is Friday the day? Because I keep hearing Friday, and then other people say, actually, it's next Friday. Or What what, are, what is the deadline situation? <laughs> this is very much the creation of House Speaker Mike Johnson. Um, 
you are right that Friday is a deadline, but people who say that next Friday is the deadline are also right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This Friday, we would be facing what is called a partial government shutdown, which is to say some agencies will run out of money and others will not. The way that um, this Congress has decided to set itself up, there are four of those funding bills we talked about that will run out of money on Friday. That's the Department of Agriculture, Energy and Water, Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, and something called Military Construction and Veterans Affairs. All the programs that fall under those buckets are going to run out of money this Friday. The following Friday is when you'll see shutdowns to the other agencies. Think of things like Homeland Security or Defense. Well, and which is why you'd imagine politicians are like, shoot, we're going to look like the bad guys here in an election year. Who knows how this could backfire on us? So then President Biden and Vice President Harris met with all these lawmakers, these top lawmakers at the White House yesterday. What do we know came out of that meeting? Anything? Yesterday, President Biden decided that it was time to bring all of the congressional leaders together into one room to work on this. So what does that look like? That's Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and Speaker Johnson. Congress's responsibility from the government. we got to get about doing a shutdown would damage the economy significantly. And I think we all agree to that. All of them got in the room yesterday to discuss primarily two things. One, keeping the government open. Two, the ongoing debate about how to fund the war effort in Ukraine. We're very optimistic. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown. What it looks like is going to happen is the House is going to try to pass four of those bills, the ones that are running out of money on this Friday, and then send them over to the Senate in hopes of passing them so that this is all dealt with until the end of September. Hmm. That is possible, but very optimistic, because as you know, it takes forever for Congress to do anything. So moving four massive spending bills in three days is a pretty big lift. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a very big lift. The Democrats are committed to keeping funding open, to to extend funding, to keep the government open. What Majority Leader Schumer suggested to us yesterday is this idea that what Congress is going to do is just pass a very short additional spending bill to keep things open for a couple more days in hopes of getting these four bills done. Isn't that what we keep saying? We keep kicking the can down the road. We'll just do it again. We sure do keep saying that. And keep in mind, they might get it done. But then the following Friday, they got another eight bills to deal with. Wow. So it seems like we're taking this very much day by day up here right now. Well, and that's what's so interesting here is you got Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell who sound like they kind of want the same things, whether it's about government spending, yeah, let's come up with a deal, whether it's about Ukraine, Hakeem Jeffries on their side, and then Speaker Mike Johnson representing a bunch of hardcore Republicans who say, like, actually, no, now might be when we need to make our stand. All right, Ali Picorn there at the Senate. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, there's another item on the congressional agenda, how to save fertility clinics. We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? 
It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life you got to compromise on. Like when I want burritos, but my wife wants salad, the compromise is we get salads. But when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who doesn't take the time to really hear your health concerns or who's in a rush to end your appointments. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. Now, if lawmakers are trying to avoid a shutdown, they're also grappling with a question that has transfixed Alabama and much of the country. Did a state Supreme Court ruling just halt in vitro fertilization for Alabama families? Well, today, lawmakers at both the state capitol and the U.S. capitol are working on answers. We're actually expecting a massive rally at the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama, and ABC's Elizabeth Schulze is in the state right now. Elizabeth, last time we spoke, you said Republican lawmakers in Alabama are trying to cobble together legislation that would protect IVF in the state. What would that even look like? Right, Brad. So they've been trying to cobble that legislation together. We finally got a look at what these bills are late Tuesday. The lawmakers in Alabama released some bills that would essentially try to restore the status quo for IVF, make it so that clinics who have put those treatments on pause in the wake of that Supreme Court ruling would be able to go forward and families who've had their treatments interrupted would be able to proceed. Why is it the safest thing for you to do to pause those frozen embryo transfers right now? We are in a position where we just don't know what the legal ramifications are. What these bills would do is basically provide civil and criminal immunity to people who are giving IVF treatments. So after Alabama's Supreme Court ruling, they worried that they could face wrongful death charges because the court described embryos as people. Embryos don't always survive that process. That's something that we know. We, we know that there's a risk to that. Now they could, if these bills pass, essentially not fear that they could be facing those charges. Here in Alabama, as I said last week, we work to foster culture of life, and that includes IVF. We saw Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey throw her support behind the legislation, saying she hopes that it can get to her desk very shortly. The legislature is diligently working on addressing these issues as we speak. Now it's going to go into a debate. These bills still need to get passed. And to kind of put the pressure on, hundreds of families and also providers are expected to be in the capital of Montgomery today to basically urge lawmakers to get their act together and get this done. 
I do feel like I'm out of options and totally powerless. Powerless. Yes. We spoke to Lochrane Chase, who's going to be rallying here today. She lives in Birmingham. She has suffered from multiple miscarriages. This is estrogen. You take a dosage of this once every three days. She was actually in the middle of an IVF cycle when her treatment, Alabama Fertility Specialists, paused IVF. So right now you're in a holding pattern, taking this for longer as you wait to find out when that transfer could happen. Yes. Really, Brad, her frustration was aimed at the fact that this has become a political issue. It definitely makes me think twice who I vote for. It also makes me think twice about the Supreme Court. She wants her health care to be in the hands of her doctors and not in the hands of courts or lawmakers. Yeah, a political issue, Elizabeth, to the point where you got members of the Biden administration showing up in state and saying, yeah, like, yeah, this is what happens and kind of blaming the Republicans that are now scrambling to, to write these laws. Yeah. And look, there's no doubt about this, Brad. The Biden administration is trying to seize momentum for the push for reproductive rights and, and wants to capitalize on that. All of this is unclear because this is what happens when you when you take away rights that people had for 50 years. So we've seen the administration come out with this message of this ruling in Alabama is a direct result of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Could we see other states limiting IVF in the wake of this decision? Is there any reason to believe there wouldn't be other states that wouldn't join the, the bandwagon the way we saw them join the bandwagon on eliminating access to abortion care services in their state? We spoke to the Biden administration's top health official, Javier Becerra, who was in Birmingham talking to families and providers, and he made the argument pretty bluntly, saying it might not just be IVF that's restricted because of the end of Roe. Will it now impact an effort to deny women and families the opportunity for contraception? You know, you just don't know. Well, and Elizabeth, you even asked him what could be done on a federal level. Is part of that like a potential federal law? Because that would supersede state law anyway, right? Right. So one of the questions is, is there a real push at the federal level to protect IVF? Obviously, we have not really seen a broad push at the federal level to reinstate Roe. But we have seen in the past week a new effort by Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth, who actually used IVF herself to have her own children, to put forward a bill that would basically make it so that federal law allows people the right to have reproductive treatments like IVF. If you truly care about the sanctity of families, if you're genuinely, actually, honestly interested in protecting IVF, then you need to show it by not blocking this bill on the floor tomorrow. She's going to try to force a vote on that bill today in the Senate. That would require unanimous support to pass. Unlikely that's going to happen. And frankly, we are continuing to see Republican lawmakers say that they support IVF while also not trying to directly say they oppose Alabama's Supreme Court ruling. They're walking this incredibly fine line, aware of the public support for IVF, while not kind of distancing themselves from anti-abortion advocates who continue to have a lot of power over voters in some of these, especially states where we are here in the South. Yeah, is there a chance that, like, I keep thinking maybe the Supreme Court gets involved, the U.S. Supreme Court, but would they have say over what the state Supreme Court of Alabama does? You know, at this point, what we are hearing is that this situation in Alabama needs to be resolved at the state level, that it's unlikely this would go to the U.S. Supreme Court because this is really a matter of the state constitution and what under Alabama law and under the Alabama constitution is legal. And that's up to lawmakers and the courts here to decide. 
you know, we're looking really closely at whether other states are trying to pass personhood laws, basically laws that would try to define embryos as people. There are about 12 states that are considering legislation. So one thing to look at really closely is, is some of the backlash that we're seeing and some of the bipartisan support that has come out for IVF going to change those efforts? Just yesterday, Florida lawmakers postponed a bill that would define an embryo as a person. So lawmakers trying to gauge the reaction from the public to see perhaps how far they could go. Yeah, and really important then that if the Supreme Court can't overturn this, it really is all up to lawmakers, either at the state or federal level, to actually push these laws through. And for that, you're going to need consensus from at least some Republicans. Elizabeth Schulze there in Alabama, head of this rally today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brad. Last year, 58 people got measles in the United States. This year, we've got more than half that number already. It's only February. You always want to protect your children and make sure they have the best environment to grow up and play in. The spread of the unknown is definitely just something uh, on your mind as a parent all, all the time. In Fort Lauderdale, Florida, school officials reported a couple weeks ago that a third grader had contracted the virus. Soon, the school reported a few more cases, then a fifth, then a sixth. Now you've got cases popping up at other sites in Broward County. Yesterday, the count there rose to nine. Doctors, well, they're growing more concerned because measles is a highly contagious disease with no specific treatment that can be deadly. What usually happens here is public health guidelines kick in. Schools tell families, if you got measles symptoms, you gotta stay home. And if you're not vaccinated for measles, please stay far, far away. What's different here is that Florida's Surgeon General has told parents that while that's the normal recommendation, in this case, he says, parents can send their unvaccinated kids to school. Everyone can decide for themselves. That has effectively turned Florida's second most populous county into a public health experiment. Let's bring in someone who once had this exact job. Dr. Scott Rivkes is the former Surgeon General for the state of Florida. He's now at Brown University. Dr. Rivkes, how concerning is the measles outbreak at a school like this? Like These numbers aren't huge or anything. Yeah, Brad, first, thank, thanks for having me. You know, measles is not going to control itself. Measles is a really serious virus. In fact, it's so contagious that one individual can actually spread it to 20 other individuals if they are not vaccinated. This virus lingers in the air for a while. So if somebody walks into a room where somebody was had measles over the previous two hours and they're not vaccinated, there's a 90% chance that they can actually get measles. Uh, measles is very serious. Uh, for children who get measles, about 20 to 50% of children will end up being uh, hospitalized. Wow. About three in a thousand individuals who have measles can actually pass away from it. People can get encephalitis from it, pneumonia. So measles is really an incredibly serious virus. And the, the vaccine of it all, because we hear about vaccines like with COVID, for instance, and, you know, Yes, they protect you, but it's not foolproof. You're saying the vaccination for measles is that, that this sounds different. Yeah, the vaccines for measles has been out since 1963. It is very effective and it is very safe. If you have one dose of vaccine, there's a 95% chance you'll be protected against measles. If you have wow. two doses, it brings it up to 99%. The other thing that's really important in this situation, Brad, is that if you are exposed to measles and you have not been vaccinated, if you get vaccinated within 72 hours, you will be largely protected from coming down with measles. So this is another important concept in terms of post-exposure vaccination. So what was your reaction when you heard this advice from Florida officials that you can send your unvaccinated kid back to school if you want? 
Yeah. So first of all, as I mentioned, we know what to do in terms of controlling measles. And breaking this down, I break this down into four major pillars. First, educate, vaccinate, isolate, and then be fair about how we are doing uh, this response. In terms of isolation, this is why it's so important. So if an individual is exposed to somebody with measles, the incubation period can be seven to 14 days. And before you come down with symptoms over the four to five days beforehand, you can actually be contagious and spread the virus when you don't have measles. So that's why typical recommendations Mm. have been, if you are exposed, isolate. And again, one person can spread this to 20 different individuals. So that's why standard public health practice, including when I was Surgeon General of Florida, was to have people who are exposed to isolate. What could happen? What do you envision happening here? Yeah, well, first, let's look at it from the viewpoint of a parent. I actually think this is very unfair to parents of an unvaccinated child mm. because this now places the burden on them to make the decision. Do you send your child back to school or not? You know, of course, we're sensitive to the fact that individuals were out of school uh, during the pandemic, but we're in a different situation now. We can have remote learning. And again, where are parents going to get this information from? Um, Also, for the other parents in the community, now they're going to be sitting there and saying to themselves, gosh, is the child who's sitting next to my child in school who is vaccinated uh, potentially contagious for measles? Vaccines are 99% effective, but there still are occasional individuals who have been vaccinated that may get measles. So again, you know, this policy really puts parents in a very uncomfortable position. Well, and that is the thing, right? We've now heard from many, many families in this Fort Lauderdale school who are like, my kid's vaccinated, but I don't feel comfortable sending them into this, you know, 99 out of 100 scenario. And so you got parents of healthy kids keeping their kids home from school. And this Surgeon General has also defied health advice that goes beyond measles, right? He's recently called for halting the use of mRNA vaccines that are used to fight COVID. So I guess I'm wondering, is this just him? Like, you've worked in the state. Does he have a different view towards vaccines than perhaps you did when you were in office? Or is this a sign that the anti-vax movement has spread beyond the fringes into government offices? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that did happen during the pandemic really was the rise of anti-vaccine sentiment. And how are we seeing this? We're seeing in pediatricians vaccinating fewer children than they had before. It's results in more children being vulnerable to uh, measles and other infectious diseases that didn't happen in the past. As far as COVID vaccine recommendations, you know, one of my concerns is this. If you look in Florida now, there are about 4,000 people who are hospitalized every month due to COVID. There are about four to 500 individuals dying every month from COVID. COVID right now is a disease. If you're vaccinated um, or get early antiviral treatment, uh, the mortality really should be very, very low. So we really have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? And is this a penalty of a lot of the anti-vaccine conversation that's happening? And I guess I'm just asking, your former boss, effectively, Ron DeSantis, has he sort of brought brought in people that are more likely to be anti-vax than, say, you were? Yeah, there's been a big transition. You know, initially, uh, the governor was very much in favor of vaccination. 
we actually led the country in the spring of 2021 in individuals who are older than 65, the portion of individuals who have been uh, vaccinated. But there has been uh, less support for vaccines uh, uh, going forward after, after that time. All right, Dr. Scott Rivkes, formerly State Surgeon General of Florida, now at Brown University. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the reception for Wendy's lately is frosty. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. In 1858, a young Quaker from Nantucket introduced Americans to an exciting new thing called a price tag. Finally, you weren't reduced to haggling for every single item. You looked at something on the shelf, it told you how much it cost. The guy was named Roland Hussey Macy. He founded the Macy's department store. Since then, that's been the standard, right? Things might go on sale, prices might rise every now and then, but they don't change from moment to moment, or do they? Beginning as early as 2025, we will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offerings, along with AI-enabled menu changes and suggestive selling. Earlier this month, the CEO of Wendy's went on a conference call and told investors that the burger chain is going to start experimenting with dynamic pricing, meaning they'll institute digital menus where the price can go up or down throughout the day. What makes this possible? Well, for the first time, Wendy says, it'll have artificial intelligence at its fingertips, giving up-to-the-second updates about what customers are buying and when, along with how long wait lines are at the drive-thru. We will continue setting the pace in generative AI. A Wendy's Baconator could cost 7 bucks in the morning and then 8 bucks during the lunch rush. Other companies have been doing this for years. Airlines change their prices all the time based on availability. Uber famously introduced surge pricing during rush hours, telling customers, no, you don't understand, this is a good thing because higher prices mean more drivers will want to get out on the road and serve you. But food is different. They're not going to build a new Wendy's location tomorrow morning to give you better service. Theoretically, this could give the company more money to hire more workers. But the CEO explicitly said on this call this is to boost profit margins for franchises. What this actually becomes is an experiment to find how much you're willing to spend on a six-piece spicy nug when you're in a hurry. It's just, say, 40 extra cents. What, are you going to go back into the parking lot? What if there's nothing better around? Which leads to another criticism of this idea. drive throughs notoriously spring up in so-called food deserts, where there aren't healthier options even if you can afford them. Recently on CNBC, the CEO of Kellogg said eating cereal for dinner might be a good option for families struggling with the price of groceries. Think about the cost of cereal for a family versus what they might otherwise do. That's going to be much more affordable. So will this be seen by customers as exploitative? Well, Wendy's is giving itself time to find out. The dynamic pricing experiment isn't set to begin until 2025. 
2025. But it might be worth remembering that the reason Quakers created those price tags was because they valued honesty. Take advantage of people, they said, and you'll have beef with your own customers. I used to work at a theater box office. One day we got a digital screen with all the ticket prices. I was like, oh, cool, whatever. My manager got a devilish glint in his eye. He was like, yeah, because now we can raise prices throughout the week. And that's when I realized, like, oh, we are not the same, you and I. Huh. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.